Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello again and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm in FIRE's Philadelphia studio to record a special extra edition of So To Speak. The topic of today's conversation, is there a campus free speech crisis? It's a topic that's lit up the internet for almost three weeks now and won't seem to go away. Joining me to help me answer that question today are my esteemed colleagues and returning, so to speak, guests, Samantha Harris and Will Creeley. Sam is FIRE's Vice President of Policy Research, and Will is FIRE's Senior Vice President of Legal and Public Advocacy. Sam and Will, welcome back to the show. Thank Thank you. you. All right, I'm going to lay it out here. It's the background. Yeah. So as you two know, about three weeks ago, Canadian scholar Jeffrey Sachs posted to Twitter what he called an unreasonably long thread arguing that there is no campus free speech crisis. For someone with only about, I think, a thousand Twitter followers at the time, the tweet did pretty well today. I just checked. It has over 3,300 retweets and 7,000 likes. And in his thread, he uses data, including FIRE's data, to argue that young people generally support free speech, universities make students more tolerant of dissenting viewpoints, and that those same universities don't punish or suppress speakers as much as we might think they do. Now, Sachs' thread led to an op-ed he wrote in the Washington Post, which more or less reiterated some of the points he made in his Twitter thread, uh, but it also led to some follow-up coverage by other journalists and pundits at Vox, NBC, and over at New York Magazine. Now, uh, for the most part, we at FIRE have stayed out of the debate for reasons I think we can get into during this discussion. Uh, But then on Thursday, President Donald Trump poured gasoline onto the fire, no pun intended, (laughs) when he interpreted a question about conservatives feeling silenced on campus as a question about support for him Wait, on he campus. made something about himself? Uh, no. no. Shocked. <laughs> Shocker. But anyway, he said that he has a lot of support on campus and that suggestions to the contrary are highly overblown. So as with everything that deals with President Trump, uh, various corners of the internet hey, interpreted man. it as they would. So uh, over at Vox, they ran the headline, Trump, colon, there's no campus free speech crisis because college students love me. New York Magazine covered it, writing a headline, Donald Trump, colon, the campus free speech crisis is highly overblown. Mm -hmm. So here we are. On Friday, Will, you and I decided uh, it's probably time that we need to jump into the conversation, and we thought a podcast would give us the necessary space, maybe too much space, to explore the various nuances and claims presented in the debate. Uh, so let's start with you then, Will. Yeah. What are your first thoughts on this debate? Well, I guess, like, what were your first thoughts when you saw Sachs's Twitter thread, and how has your thinking on it evolved over the past three weeks? Well, it's a funny position to be in as a lawyer who works in this space because, you know, whether or not there's a crisis or not is not really something that I'm 
all that concerned about sometimes. If one person is being censored on campus, that's too many people for me. And the cases that come across our desk every morning have not stopped in the 12 years I've been here. In fact, they've picked up. We get more case submissions every year. Now, not all of those are meritorious, but a good number of them are. And it's exhausting to see the work that we do seized upon as just the latest culture war football, you know, and, and uh, this side will say there's no free speech crisis, this side will say there is. It's an awful lot of op-ed ink about stuff that we've been seeing every day for 12 years. Yeah. And my frustration, and I've said this many times before, I just wish more of that attention, more of that punditry, more of that Twitter space was paid to the actual cases that we do work. When we had uh, the case at Northern Michigan University where uh, the student, uh, Katarina Claus, is told that she can't speak to her peers about uh, her uh, thoughts of self-harm without risking disciplinary infraction, where's the press on that? When we get the case uh, at Joliet Junior College, which we have going on right now, and we did get good coverage from the Chicago yeah. Tribune, I will note. This is one of our lawsuits. One of our ongoing lawsuits. Uh, for the student who was detained by campus police for handing out anti-capitalism flyers. Where's the press on that? When we win our Eighth Circuit victory and uh, vindicate the rights of the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws at Iowa State University, a settlement, uh, a case that results in two victories at the Eighth Circuit, and then a settlement uh, of, of some real size. It's going to cost the university a million dollars, all told. That's the AP did note. Yeah. But there's no national coverage of that. There's no, you know, endless back and forth. Well, on... no national coverage right. from the political pundits. From the political pundits, that's right. Yeah. I, this, for a while now, free speech on campus has served as a full employment plan for pundits on either side of the issue, and it just is exhausting to me. I can almost write those articles in my sleep now. Like, I know exactly how they go. I can tell you who the writer is uh, or where they stand on the ideological spectrum in about two seconds because it's just, it's almost formulaic now. It feels like rote. And a lot of heat, not a lot of light. My basic summation here, Nico, sorry to ramble on about it, but you're catching me up. <laughs> I thought Monday you were about morning. to apologize for the light and heat one, which yeah. I always berate people on email <laughs> for because light can too. only come from heat. <laughs> That's a good point. All right, let me get to the end of this coffee. We'll, we'll get back to that one. You can but get my, to the end of your statement, too. I won't cut you basic, off anymore. My basic point is here. Whether or not there's a quote-unquote crisis, qualitatively speaking, I mean, Sam can speak more on that because she does the numbers every year for our spotlight report on how many policies on campus actually censor students, and it's a lot. It's too Which much. Matt Iglesias used to argue that I know. there is no crisis we'll get on there, campus. Right? We'll, yeah. But so, you know, we are put in the funny position of trying to put ourselves out of business, not getting a lot of attention on our individual casework when you would think that we might get a lot of attention on some of these cases because they're fascinating stories with fascinating students, and then just kind of having to read about why uh, free speech on campus is or isn't important every day in the op-ed pages. I'm, you know, Right. Enough. I mean, that's, like Will, I take significant issue with the whole framing of crisis versus no crisis because whether or not there's a crisis, censorship is happening and we need to be doing something about it. So when people look at it and say, well, there's no free speech crisis, it looks like most students, you know, majority of students support the right to free speech, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that if you have, as you do, faculty and students being routinely censored on campus, there's a problem. Whether or not it's a crisis, when it happens, we need to be working to address it. And when you have people 
coming at it through this framing and saying, well, if there's no crisis, what are you guys doing over there? It's like, we're fighting censorship on campus. It doesn't have to be that every student on campus supports censorship for there to be a problem worth addressing. And we know there's a problem worth addressing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen change over the course of my time at FIRE is a rise in submissions by faculty who are facing censorship or investigation or termination um, for their germane classroom speech. We also do have cases, you know, involving faculty who are uh, facing censorship based on their statements, uh, you know, on matters of public concern outside the classroom. But right now I'm talking about just inside the classroom. And, you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't mean that faculty at every university have to actually experience censorship. When there are a number of high-profile incidents of censorship involving faculty uh, and how they are teaching their classroom subject, um, that has a chilling effect on the speech of faculty around the country. Um, and we know that. We've read, you know, a number of, there have been a number of pieces by faculty about this phenomenon. And so what, um, what looking at the number of cases of censorship doesn't take into account is the amount of speech that simply never takes place because of this chilling effect. And that's something that we also have to think about. We can't just say how many people are speaking out and being censored. We have to say how many people are looking at this climate and saying, I don't want to speak out or I don't want to teach this subject anymore. Yeah, well, that presents um, another variable in the equation about campus free speech, quote unquote, crisis. So Jeffrey Sachs in his Twitter thread and in his Washington Post op-ed focuses on the student angle. And he tries to use data to argue that students aren't all that censorious. Uh, They generally support free speech principles. And when you compare them to the general population, they are more supportive of free speech principles across time. Again, he uses this general social survey, which I think every other year since 1972 has asked the same question of the population. And if I'm correct, that's grouped by age, right? I mean, it doesn't actually take into account whether people are college students. It's just looking at people in that age group. Yes, correct, correct. But the important thing about this survey is that it's a longitudinal one, so you're able to to compare answers across time. And so what he looks at is the recent responses from college-age students, which I think he he, uh, categorizes as 18 to 34-year-olds. But this group... They are not actual students. They are just people who might find themselves in college. I'm glad to know I'm still uh, only a few years outside of being considered (laughs) college age. Yeah, and what he he finds by looking at this cohort is that they're generally supportive of free speech compared to their off-campus peers. But as Jonathan Haidt and his colleague Sean Stevens over at Heterodox Academy noted, is that we've really only started to see some of these illiberal attitudes among students start to percolate in the last couple of years. And he draws a clear delineation between millennials and Generation Z or iGen, which starts around 1994 or 1995. So they arrived on campus around 2012 or 2013. And when you break down the the general social survey, you only find something like 32 people who could conceivably be iGen responding to the general social survey, 32 people. Mm -hmm. And um, those are the people that were enrolled in college. So I don't know how Jonathan found out that they were enrolled in college at the time, but the total cohort that you can look at that represents iGen is just 99 people. So we don't have a representative sample, something that you could uh, 
draw clear conclusions from from the data that Jeffrey Sachs is using to argue that student attitudes has changed. So it's it's a bit difficult. We, he doesn't speak, to your point, Sam, anything about faculty members' attitudes. So, uh, and then he also doesn't speak anything about administrative attitudes or off-campus group attitudes. I mean, when we're talking about the campus free speech debate, it's not just students. You see off-campus groups petition for speakers to be disinvited or for faculty to be fired. You see legislatures get into the mix. You see liability-obsessed administrators concerned about avoiding controversy on campus. And then you see faculty who are speaking out or not speaking out about censorship issues on their campuses. So just because a group of 99 students who responded to the general social survey said one thing, doesn't give, paint you the whole picture, even if what they're saying is that there's something to see here. Well, and one really interesting point about administrators is I think, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I think it was, was it Sachs' original um, longer form piece that used FIRE's speech code data to say, nothing to see here. What was, was that Sachs' piece? Yeah, I can pull it up. He pulled it, talked about um, it in the Twitter thread. So, or that might have been uh, Matt Iglesias okay. so, at Fox. You know, I've been tracking campus speech codes for, you know, almost 13 years now at FIRE. And it's true that the percentage of schools maintaining the most restrictive speech codes has gone down. And we've actually seen an increasing number of schools adopting um, statements in support of free speech modeled after the one that the University of Chicago adopted in January 2015. So I would actually say, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, that I think, you know, based on my own engagement with administrators, that there is starting to be actually a greater understanding among at least some administrators about the importance of protecting free speech on campus because of some of these, um, you know, very high profile, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the Charles Murray, Middlebury violence, you know, the Milo violence, because of some of these incidents of, um, you know, student demands for censorship, there has started to be some more administrative support for free speech, at least in principle. But what I'm seeing is that the train has kind of left the station. You know, after years of fire saying to administrators, you, you have to protect free speech across the board. This is not a partisan issue. You need to just make clear that your university supports free speech. Schools are starting to do it, but it, but it's a little bit, it feels like it may be a little bit too late in terms of you know, student attitudes. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, students generally don't support free speech, but I'm saying that I don't think that this increased administrative support for free speech, which I think you can see um, reflected in some of the reduction of speech codes on campus. Well, let's talk about that. So something like a third of campuses retain some of the most restrictive red light speech codes, right. down from something like 75% right. when we started doing it. And over 90% of schools still maintain what we would consider to be a speech code of some type. Yeah, so um, there's what, like 50, 60% that maintain yellow light speech codes right. that aren't uh, the most restrictive kind, but could be interpreted to violate uh, free speech principles. Right. And are often in practice used to punish uh, actually protected speech. Yeah, so you still, have nine out of 10 colleges with speech codes on the books. But I want to take a, a step back here. You both have been at FIRE for over 10 years. So you've seen how this debate has played out uh, for over 10 years. FIRE was founded in 1999. Do you get a sense, and we're not talking about data here, that the debate has changed? When I talked to Greg Lukianoff, our president, he says when he first came aboard at FIRE in 2001, a lot of post 9-11 cases, mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when I first came aboard here at FIRE 
as an intern in 2010 and then as a full-time staffer in 2012, a lot of concern about the federal government. Mm -hmm. But when Greg wrote his book, Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship in the Un-American Debate, there was very little discussion of student attitudes about free speech because we weren't seeing uh, disinvitation requests or demands. We weren't seeing microaggression policing. We weren't seeing requests for trigger warnings. Uh, we weren't seeing um, uses of the heckler's veto. These weren't even on our minds in 2012. So my question to you is, why is it on our minds today? Is it something that the pundits are creating, or is there some, some there there? I think it's a little bit of both, Nico. You know, I think that when, when the whole trigger warning debate kicked off a couple years ago, I'd do press requests, and they'd say, well, give us an example of a school that's imposed a mandatory trigger warning request. To my mind, there was one. Right. At Crofton Hills College in California, public school, trigger request, and, and contra the kind of prevailing narrative, the trigger request came from a student on the right. Uh, she was an evangelical uh, Christian who had taken a graphic studies... Uh, graphic novel course. Graphic novel course, thank you, in the English department, and had been offended by books like Persepolis or Fun Home, um, which were all the rage for cases for a little while. We had a lot of Fun Home cases for a little bit. Um, it's a graphic novel that deals with growing up, uh, the author's experience growing up, uh, Alison Bechdel, I think, uh, growing up um, and uh, coming to grips with her sexuality. So the student had requested a, a trigger warning and the school had acquiesced and, and we came in, a couple other groups, National Coalition Against Censorship, uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, school did the right thing, no problem. Um, so in terms of whether there are widespread requests for, you know, from students for censorship, I don't know if it's, you know, like at every campus all the time, everywhere. Um, but again, I think, to go back to my original point, even one request where students say, you know what, I would rather have the authorities make the decision for me and my peers as to what we can hear, or I'm going to appoint myself the arbiter of what's permittable to discuss on campus. Even if we get one of those, um, it sounds corny, but I, one of them is enough for me to be concerned. So I, I think that at that point, um, some discussion is, is necessary and some discussion is appropriate and required. What I don't like and what I think a lot of the, um, the froth in the debate uh, uh, is attributable to is the uh, kind of generational uh, framing that has is, is really um, become the uh, staging ground for a lot of other battles. Um, but they, they all get funneled into the, the free speech on campus discussion uh, whether or not today's students um, are uh, particularly um, sensitive and need protecting or whether or not, you know, the older folks had it right the first time, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of that uh, pitching us versus them and, uh, that I think is sometimes less than useful. There's some very sensitive discussions of it, like, again, uh, like, like Greg and, uh, and Jonathan Haidt's uh, Atlantic article, I think, is often misconstrued as kind of an anti, you know, iGen screed, when in fact it's kind of like, hey, we're seeing lots of rising anxiety levels on campus. Maybe it's something that we're doing uh, as the adults in the room uh, that are producing students who feel uncomfortable, uh, insecure, depressed, etc. 
So I think it, it was kind of more of a diagnostic, like how can we better help these people uh, push, and I, I think their forthcoming book is much the same. same. Um, on the other hand, that, that kind of framing is nuanced, and what a lot of the 800-word uh, op-eds that we've seen come out in recent years have been uh, contrary to Greg's piece, have been kind of, my generation was right, your generation is a bunch of snowflakes. So in turn, students react to that, and then you're off and running, right? Then it's just intergenerational insults being hurled back and forth, and some folks will want to come and defend students on campus today, and some folks will want to, you know, go after those people. And, uh, well, that's a tale as old as time, you've right? Lost it, right, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Once you get into older people telling younger people what they're doing wrong, I don't know how much we're talking about campus free speech anymore. You know what I mean? At that point, you're just kind of. Well, you know, that's, that's measurable. Yeah. They're talking about student attitudes and Jeffrey Sachs and Jonathan Haidt. They're trying to look at the, what does the data say about student attitudes? Jonathan Haidt argues that there's a clear delineation between how, how millennial students feel about free speech and how iGen students f feel about free speech and that we won't really know whether there's a cliff there for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, uh, until we get more more survey data, but there are signs, and to to Jonathan Haidt's point, that there are some changing attitudes. Whether they're significant yet again, we don't know. Gallup Knight just released a survey last week uh, that piggybacks on their 2016 survey that asked students a lot of questions about free speech on campus, and four percent. Uh, more students in 2018 than in 2016 thinks that campuses should restrict slurs or, quote, language that is intentionally offensive to certain groups. 3% of students think, uh, more than 2016, think that political viewpoints that are upsetting or offensive to a certain group should be restricted on campus. And they have a lot, of more, lot more information um, comparing to their 2016 survey that can be found on our website at thefire.org. But there might be movement there. There might be movement there, and it's worth paying attention to. I guess, again, just to kind of go back to what I, what I hope <laughs> my rambling ways is my overarching point here, is that when you have uh, free speech debates <coughs> posited in generationalist terms, um, I think a lot can be obscured, and there is room for noise there that responds to cultural stimuli that... Um, doesn't always correspond with whether or not someone's free speech is actually a threat, right? Now, take, for example, uh, what happened this past weekend with high school students and Americans everywhere uh, marching uh, in various cities, including D.C., uh, in support of gun control laws. Those students who participate in that debate might have a different view of their First Amendment rights post that debate than they did previous, and they might contrast that with uh, their reaction to somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos coming to campus, right? I guess what I'm saying is that to some extent, I wonder if support for free speech is situational, and we know it, being First Amendment attorneys, we have to take every case, you know, that comes through the door, um, that for a lot of folks, free speech is something noble and to be celebrated when it's somebody saying something that you agree with. And it's something that can be cabined when it's something you disagree or suspect. with. suspect. Yeah, right. that's, a, that's something that comes up in all these so if you get, if you get Milo, Sorry, if you get Milo coming to campus, you think, yeah, maybe, you know, we can tighten up the, uh, the prohibition because, you know, Milo might uh, attack a, a transgender student the way he did at one of those campuses. You might, the students who were in the attendance there or who, who were on that campus might think, yeah, free speech is terrible. It's what allows Milo to come to campus and attack somebody. But if you talk to one of the high school students who said, yeah, I walked out, and, uh, and exercise my First Amendment rights, and you know they can't punish me for me speaking about issues of public concern outside, maybe they have a different view. Yeah, Sam? 
Well, and I was I was going to say that I think a lot of support for free speech depends on how the individual defines free speech. I mean, we know, and I think it was Fire Survey that showed, you know, among college students that a very significant portion of, of students don't think that hate speech um, should be protected by the First Amendment. My experience in talking to people of all ages is that this is a very common misconception that hate speech is already not protected by the First Amendment. So a lot of times people will say they support free speech, and then we'll see, I mean, I can't even count how many editorials and things like that I've seen saying, oh, I support free speech, but hate speech isn't free speech. And now, of course, hate speech has no legal definition. So when someone says hate speech isn't free speech, what it actually means is anything they find hateful. So that could range from something that really wouldn't be protected speech, like threats or harassment, to just something that, you know, is obnoxious or hurtful. Um, And so I think we really, the the hate speech is not free speech um, angle is one that definitely merits, I think, further consideration. Um, And I think people's understandings and beliefs, my sense is that people's understandings and beliefs about what free speech is and what free speech should be has been shifting. Um, You know, there's been a very marked increase in things I've read, both from students and from faculty and commentators, so not talking generationally here, um, about this idea that speech that in any way undermines or denies the humanity of another person, which can be can mean a whole wide range of things, actually has a negative impact on the marketplace of ideas and, and undermines the right to free speech instead of um, of aiding it. And that, you know, in, in fact, in order to protect everyone's free speech rights, some speech, um, generally the speech of the more privileged, you know, needs to be restricted in order to allow all voices to be to be sufficiently amplified and heard. Mm-hmm. Now, my sense is that the people putting forward that theory would say that they strongly support free speech. Mm-hmm. So that it's not when we say, do you support free speech? It doesn't necessarily. I mean, I know some of these surveys, you know, delve deeper into what people actually did and didn't support. But I think that particularly when it comes to the, the people who don't believe hate speech is free speech and then, you know, digging deeper into, OK, well, what is hate speech then? Um, that's sort of where some of the problem lies. Yeah, well, so I, I've got some of these surveys in front of me. Gallup Knight found that 70 percent of students said they believe in a campus environment that allows all types of speech. But only 34 percent of those students said they think hate speech should be protected by the First Amendment. Now, they, they might not understand how the First Amendment applies to campus, but if you think all types of speech should be allowed on campus, then presumably you think all the speech that's protected by the First Amendment should be allowed on campus. And, and I think that to understand attitudes about free speech, we would really need to drill down more into, okay, of those 70% of people who say they don't think hate speech should be protected by the First Amendment, how do they define that? Yeah, in that survey, students were more willing, as I mentioned before, to support restrictions on uh, you know, using slurs or specific scenarios. In Fire's survey, which you referenced earlier, we found that 48% of students think the First Amendment should not protect hate speech. And when asked to define what to them constituted hate speech, they, they, uh, 45% of them identified speech with a racist component, which we know is uh, generally protected by the First Amendment, of course, depending on, on the context. But 
there's always support for free speech, even amongst dictators like like Vladimir Putin or you know Erdogan and Turkey or you know Mao Zedong. They all they all pay lip service to free speech, but it's when you get to those specific granular scenarios. The devil's in the details. <laughs> yes, as uh, John Stewart said, uh, you know, if you only support a principle in certain contexts mm -hmm. and not in others, then it's not really a principle or a value of yours. It's just a hobby. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> I think he had it spot on. I want to get back to Sachs's argument here and take a look at whether what he's saying can be true at the same time that the free speech situation is getting worse on campus. So it could be the case, for example, that student attitudes about free speech are two thumbs up. And the same as they've always been, they're better than their off-campus peers but that the dynamics on campus have changed to empower that small minority that might be willing to use violence or censorship to shut other people out, that's empowering that small minority to, to determine the scope of what can and can't be said on campus. I think that's campus. a great point, actually. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, look, maybe, maybe President Trump is right that, it, that I think he made some point in that kind of block of text and from the transcript about how on some campuses... Uh, he used the hilarious phrase Middle West, not the Middle West schools, but like the some campuses there are uh, students who are more apt to engage in kind of illiberal, no platforming tactics, and maybe they get all the media attention and, and other campuses that that situation doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, I've seen this point made elsewhere, too, is that if that starts looking powerful, if that starts looking to be like an interesting tactic or a tactic that works or a tactic to use the classic um, Alinsky, you know, a, a good tactic is one your supporters enjoy. Like if people actually like participating in, you know, political, what I've, what I've become terming political fight club, you know, and like having their like, you know, live play, cosplay, LARPing exercises where everybody dresses up either in the black block or in their, you know, Iron Cross Nazi regalia and like sh have showdowns on campus uh, uh, quads. And like if that starts looking like fun to everybody, then we've got a serious problem. And the other point that, that, uh, that Chait makes, Jonathan Chait, which I think is a it's good New York one. Magazine. Of New York Magazine. Thanks. Um, and he gets a lot of heat from this from, from left Twitter, but I think it's actually a good point, right? If that uh, starts becoming like the vanguard or like that starts becoming the, not just the most stylish or, or most celebrated, but the actual like expected response to speech you don't like is to try and shut it up, then you do have a problem, right? If, if people start saying, hey, we did that on campus and it really worked, like actually, I, or I have a moral obligation to physically shut down somebody I don't like, or if you don't do that, you're somehow complicit in the speech that's happened, right? If the idea is that to be a good um, uh, person, you have to silence the speech you dislike, that's at odds with American jurisprudence and American pluralism and, you know, basically American democracy. And I, I you know, kind of think about our, our civic religion of allowing folks who you disagree with to, to have their say in hopes of um, dissipating violence or arriving at a better solution. Yeah, that, if that starts being, like, really cool and really fun, then look out. Well, um, it's more fun and more yeah. cool if you don't get punished for doing it. Right, that's right. And yeah, this is, this that's what we too. saw at the University of California, Berkeley, last year. I don't know how, how many students uh, participated in that protest, but I think something like only one person or a handful of people got arrested in a mob that caused $100,000 worth of, of of damage and uh, in which many of the participants or some of the participants assaulted uh, other participants. Right. 
then you have you have an issue, and I, I don't know how how many students or uh, participants in the protests at Middlebury College were actually punished. Uh, I think there were a couple, yeah. but the, if the behavior that gets rewarded gets repeated, if there's not a punishment for engaging in li illiberal, violent activity, then if you're in, you have fun doing it, there's very little incentive against not doing it anymore. Well, and also these incidents, these high-profile incidents affect the climate at other campuses. I mean, one thing that we have seen is a lot of schools proactively instituting policies in an effort to avoid these kinds of situations that either, you know, impose security fees impermissibly on groups trying to bring controversial speakers to campus, that um, impermissibly infringe on students' right to protest by, you know, anticipating these sorts of violent disruptions and saying, okay, any disruptive uh, protest, but that could be very broadly defined, uh, will be punished. You know, so we see, again, it's not just about the censorship. It's about what people are doing in terms of holding back their own speech or enacting policies in response to the censorship. When, when the disinvitation season story started to pick up in 2014, I remember it was either Greg or someone else here at FIRE said, you know, if this is going to be the response to bringing a somewhat controversial speaker to campus in the future, we're just not going to invite somewhat controversial right. speakers to right. speak on campus. And I think you're seeing that sort of play out. I mean, you lose there's folks. not a lot of interestingness in these right. commencement addresses. Right. Not that there ever and was. You, but You start, I mean, at some point, you start eating your own, so to speak. And, and what I mean is like when at William & Mary, I don't think this story got enough play. The head of the ACLU of Virginia comes to William & Mary and is not allowed to speak. And there's this back and forth, and then there's you know the, the end of the speech prematurely, as I recall, and that's a that's a tough tough sign, man. I, I think that if not just because it's the head of the ACLU, but it it starts to be uh, I think able to be characterized as a purity test that nobody can pass. There will be a position that somebody holds uh, that you disagree with, and whether or not you can listen to their points. Um, after you know that you disagree with them on some fundamental issue, it's going to be a really interesting question. Look again at this past weekend. I mean, the other thing is that for pundits and for us and for everybody, the free speech debate is a fascinating one because there's always more grist for the mill. Like, something's always just happened. Killer Mike, uh, rapper, uh, one half of, of the rap duo Run the Jewels, he's on NRA TV this weekend in an interview, uh, which apparently had gone on prior, uh, saying that as a black man, he supports Second Amendment rights because he doesn't trust the government and wants to have um, a gun, uh, some possibility of, of defending himself. Uh, and I think I'm paraphrasing his argument, but so excuse me if I'm not getting it exactly right. So he gets a lot of heat from folks who say, hey, now you're, you're being a mouthpiece for the NRA. So I wonder if Run the Jewels comes to campus, you know, if the ACLU of Virginia head is problematic and can't be heard, can we hear Run the Jewels now, or is Killer Mike going to be persona non grata on campuses where you have to be in line with everything? Or are people going to say, hey, no, let's listen to his points, right? I mean, that's, that's what I get Yeah, to. the ACLU example at the, at the College of William & Mary is, is a fascinating one. So this, the ACLU has many chapters, chapters in all 50 states and I think most territories. And the University of Virginia chapter was the chapter that came to defend uh, the right to assemble for the white nationalists during the Charlottesville controversy. Um, it's a pretty open and shut First Amendment case, correct me if I'm wrong, and it things, something that the ACLU has been doing since it was founded. Uh, well, we know how Charlotte, Charlottesville turned out. 
After that, at the College of William & Mary, some of the members of the ACLU of Virginia participated in a panel in which student demonstrators disrupted and ultimately ended up shutting it down and they were chanting things like, the revolution will not sustain the Constitution and the ACLU is a white supremacist organization. Now, one of the interesting things looking at the survey data, specifically the general social survey, is that young people support for for freedom of speech principles when presented with scenarios. Uh, Young people, of course, 18 to 34 year olds, are generally more supportive than those off campus, except when it comes to racist speakers. Young people's tolerance for racial, racist speakers is declining, and it's declining in relationship to their off-campus peers. The question then is, how are students defining racism, and are they expanding what they can, the, their definitions of racism to now include the ACLU? Because if that's the case, and almost everyone is a racist, including the ACLU, and you're more willing to censor racist speakers than your off-campus peers, you have a problem, right? Yeah, I think you have a problem. I mean, look, and I wrote this piece for the New York Times um, last fall when Spencer was going to come to Florida, University of Florida, and it reminded people that you can just ignore speakers, right? That there's sometimes a real, I mean, it may feel like some kind of moral abdication, but in fact... And that's what the Southern Poverty Law Center advocates. Right. There may, instead of a moral abdication, it might actually be the most morally defensible move if you disagree with Spencer, because what Spencer and his ilk really want uh, is attention. And if you deny them that attention, I mean, if Richard Spencer gives a speech in a forest and no one's around, it doesn't make a sound, right? So, you know, um, yeah, Clara Gastanyaga, uh, head of the ACLU of Virginia, uh, when, when she can't speak, um, I think that that's enough to say something's going on, what, what's happening. Um, I think, uh, you know, whether or not that merits uh, the word crisis or not, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm less interested in that and more interested in uh, what we, as folks who believe in the First Amendment, uh, believe in civil liberties uh, protections, need to do to make sure that when students or anybody arrive on campus, uh, they have a basic understanding of what the First Amendment does and does not protect, uh, what speech is, you know, punishable as harassment, uh, what speech is protected by the First Amendment, including quote-unquote hate speech, and why those protections are important for all of us. That's, uh, maybe that's the last component that I think is probably the, where we have the most work to do. Um, to remind students, you know, easy for me, 37-year-old white guy, to say, yeah, protect free speech, but let me tell you, you know, why that's important, right? I mean, what, what does free speech protect you from? I'm telling students lately, maybe a Trump administration will change this to some folks on the left. You want your political enemies deciding for you once they've assumed power what you can and can't say? I don't. Right. I I often make that point about, you know, okay, who's going to define what hate speech is? It's the people in power. How do you think Trump would define hate speech? Probably anything unpatriotic, anything opposed to him, right? I mean, you can't... Is Black Lives Matter, you know, is is that a terrorist group under the Trump administration? You know, stay tuned, right? So we'll we'll find out. And maybe that will change. That's what I mean, I guess, to clarify my other early rambling point about how free speech is sometimes situational. I wonder, it it may look different uh, when you are exercising the right. Uh, rather than you criticizing somebody else's uh, exercise right. of that right. I also want to point out something uh, that Robbie Suave made, mm-hmm. a point that Robbie Suave made in Reason, where he said there's just a lot more, there's many more organizations covering this issue yeah, than there true. was in yes. 2000. I remember when I was doing this job, this communications job in 2012 and 2013, and you know I'd pull up my Google alerts or my talk walker alerts and see who's talking about free speech on campus, and I'd maybe have one or two a day. Mm-hmm. Now I Now I wake up in the morning with, 
20, 20 news stories that are relevant to our issues, half of them mentioning fire, uh, many of them coming from the new organizations or new news outlets that sprouted up to cover this issue, like campus reform and the college fix. And so maybe they're talking about issues that have maybe always exist or maybe not always exist, have given us the perception that it's a, a bigger controversy than it is. A lot more media coverage, a lot more gas. And, you know, uh, our colleagues, Azar and Marika, made this point um, in a blog a couple weeks back. Marika made a great point. At some point, the like discussion about free speech maybe gets boring, right? At some point, you want to talk about what the people are saying, not whether or not they have the right to say it. Mm-hmm. And that would be the more interesting progression as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if the protesters of Claire Gassignaga at, at uh, William & Mary um, let her speak and then say, here's why we think you're wrong, right? Instead of saying, well, we have a moral obligation to no platform you because, you know, ACLU defends uh, white supremacists. That would be more interesting. And maybe at some point this thing will burn itself out because you're right, Nico, there's so much attention uh, right now. And maybe that's also a little bit of the burnout on students. Maybe that, maybe they, you know, are tired, They're of, just getting, tired of talking getting about hit or... with the free speech club. I mean, again, like I was saying earlier, like I feel like I could write one of these columns, you know, with my eyes closed, like yeah, on either side, left or right. It's just too easy. I have to imagine if I was a student going to college today yeah. and almost every story about college kids is about free speech. I, I open up Inside Higher Ed and the Chronicle of Higher Education every morning. At least one, probably more of the stories are about this. It's, you know, not, as, not nearly as many stories about how much students are paying for college mm-hmm. or the decline in full-time faculty right. and the rise of adjuncts. Right. It's all, it's all you know, speakers being censored or about to be censored right. or amount, maybe spent censored. The focus on it is definitely something new. And I can tell that just from the number of people at, you know, cocktail parties and stuff who want to ask me. I'm right. like not one of these people. When I am not at work, I like to be talking about other oh, things. Tell me about um, it. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like yep. at every, you know, party with my friends and everything, everybody, they're like, oh, you work on free speech on campus. Tell me about what's going on. Tell me, you know, people like really want to know about it yeah. because it's in the news so much. And I'm like, oh, can we talk about, you know, yeah. anything else? Or, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think this is like part of the thing about doing college student stuff is college students are always interesting to the news reading public, right? Because uh, either you went to college and therefore you have some kind of emotional investment in your image of young people and, and you remember what it was like to be to school and your whole life's in front of you, yada, yada, right? Or... Uh, you you know have some generational acts to grind, and you want to remember yourself as being better than these these uh, snowflakes, etc. Everybody's always interested in kids, you know. They don't um, they don't like make you know popular shows about people in their 40s who are bored at their jobs, right? They make interesting shows about college kids who are doing fun college kid stuff, and like I always feel like now that I'm you know on the other side of 40, I always have to road test any generationally related statement I make by Asking myself, okay, could this plausibly start with these kids today? Right, exactly. And would it, you know? Yeah, here's my get lawn. Let me tell lawn. you to get yeah. off it, right? Exactly. And yell at some clouds really quick. Yeah, there's some, some of that. But, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think uh, Robbie Suave made a great point. Is that there's just a more of a, of a um, mech, uh, infrastructure to amplify these stories because outrage sells, whether it's the outrage on the right uh, about students on the left um, or outrage on the left about the outrage on the right, you know, it's self-perpetuating. Well, and a lot of these, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of these stories, you'll see stories about censorship, but you'll also just see stories about, you know, 
leftist group protests right-wing group or right-wing group protests leftist group. And that's not a free speech problem. That may be indicative of other sort of culture war issues, but it's not. And when you see those stories one after another, and they both are sort of flagged under the general topic of free speech on campus, you know, there's, I feel like, a growing conflation between just people getting protested and attempts to censor people, and that's troubling. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and the one point that I would feel remiss if we didn't raise here is that a lot of these, they are wrapped in new packaging. We've got new, you know, um, participants like Milo Yiannopoulos or uh, Antifa or whatever. But these are old debates, especially on the left, uh, with regard to whether or not liberalism just facilitates the rise of fascism, whether or not uh, respect for civil liberties is something that the left should actually embrace uh, with regard to free speech or not. I mean, I saw on Twitter this wild old cartoon from the 30s, which was a... um, uh, a cartoon, I think, either from a socialist or, or a communist perspective about liberalism. And it was a four-panel cartoon. First panel, uh, the liberal is saying, we have to protect the right of the fascist to speak. Second panel, uh, we have to protect the right of the fascist to speak. By the f- third panel, he's getting dragged off by the police. Fourth panel, he's in jail, and the fascists have taken over, right? And it's something like liberalism kills or, or free speech is, you know, is, is a path to fascism, right? So th- those kind of debates, I mean, that's damn near 100 years old. That's an 80-year-old cartoon making a lot of points that sound very familiar now, right? Like if we allow Gostinyaga from the ACLU to come up here and she's going to defend the rights of the Nazis, we're only a couple steps away. Maybe it's just like unsettled political times we're in right now. You know, I mean, when you have swastikas, I mean, I feel like all Americans have seen more swastikas in the past year than we're accustomed to seeing maybe ever. Like the the rise of the alt-right and the fest... Uh, festooning of alt-right folks in the free speech banner. I mean, no wonder we're like, you know, talking about this and people feel nervous about free speech. When you have, you know, rallies on the right that are, that are saying we're a free speech rally and, by the way, check out these swastikas, you know, it's not a surprise that college kids are going to say that makes Or this is a free speech rally, check out our free speech bus, but really we're protesting the transgender bastard. Right. At the same say. time, though, if I can bring yeah. this around to a positive note, I actually think that in some ways the unsettled political times right now may present, Mm. you know, those of us who come at support for free speech from a nonpartisan perspective with an unprecedented opportunity to get a broad coalition behind our message. Because, you know, for years, I feel like we've been fighting the perception that, you know, it's just conservatives complaining about, you know, liberals not supporting free speech. Now, when you see a president threatening the free press and things like that, I think that people of all political stripes are starting to understand the point that, look, you know, how free speech plays out depends on who's in power. No one political group has a monopoly on censorship. People tend to want to censor speech they disagree with. So it's not about this side versus that side and what, you know, side values free speech more. It's about who's got power. And so I think that, you know, as much as there is a lot of, you know, issues right now, there's also a lot of opportunity. I, I agree with Will that some of the coverage gets exhausting mm. of yes. it, but I would I still think there's room for more coverage on some of these non-culture war issues, yeah. like the NMU case, yeah. like the art censorship case at yeah. Polk State College, yeah. like our Joliet Junior College case. They don't fit into a neat culture war narrative, no. so the pundits on the right and left don't cover them. I will give credit to the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. They often do cover these. Thank you, AP. Uh, yeah. 
but uh, there's more room for coverage there. And the, some of these nonpartisan cases, too. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to see this stuff on MSNBC and Fox News. Yeah. But in the meantime, I, we will keep doing our work defending free speech rights wherever they are challenged. We do not measure whether we need to defend free speech rights by the number of right. people whose rights are violated, just like you wouldn't, as my colleague Adam Goldstein put it, you wouldn't determine whether you need to defend the Montgomery bus boycotters by how many bus boycotters were arrested for illegal carpools. Like right. that's immaterial right. of one black person is being arrested for participating in a boycott and a carpool, then that is too many. We don't determine uh, the, the, the danger of a civil rights violation by the number of those civil rights violations. It's a variable, but it's not the only variable. I should say that Jeffrey Sachs um, told me on Twitter, I guess told the world on Twitter, that he's going to be responding to Jonathan Haidt's blog post at Heterodox Academy. I encourage everyone to check out Jonathan Haidt's blog post at Heterodox Academy. Check out Jeffrey Sachs' article at the Washington Post. The debate's going to keep going. Jonathan Haidt and, and Sean Stevens are going to put out another blog post as well. So, you know, as much as we at FIRE probably want to move away from the question of whether there's a free speech crisis, it's yeah. going to continue. And it, we actually might be contributing it because we might be hosting a debate at the Comedy Cellar on it. I'm in. You know, <laughs> the, let the conversation, I mean, as a First Amendment lawyer, you have to say, let yeah. the conversation continue. Yeah. I would just encourage everybody, if you have been censored, come to us, right? Crisis or not, you can be a crisis of one. Send it to us. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, until then, it'll be like, FIRE, we just work here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We've been working here since 1999 when nobody cared about yeah, this issue. Right. Come on by. So, Anyway, thank you two for joining me today. Thank this you. is kind of a, a fast um, assembly yeah. after Will and I talked on Friday. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. As always, you can email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed our chat today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.